are in our final message in this series on the book of James. He's talking about money. He's going to be giving us a farming metaphor, and he's talking about patience. But what he's really talking about is surrendering our idols and surrendering our desire to control things that are outside of our authority. And that can be really difficult for us because we, have, we were talking about this in men's group yesterday. Yesterday was a, an amazing time. It was an amazing time. There was breakthrough. There was uh, you know, prayer. Uh, there, there was just discussion about, uh, about this principle, about surrendering the stuff that's right in front of us, surrendering our idols. We were talking a little bit about technology. And now technology can become an idol, right? My phone can take the place of my God sometimes if I let it. Um, my, my, my ease and my comfort can become an idol. We can, we can make an idol out of just about anything. And so what James is talking about here, he's talking about a very specific thing that I think touches each one of us because money is something that we just kind of need to make it in the world, right? I know that in, in, you know, in the kingdom, God doesn't, he doesn't use money, right? He doesn't need money. But here, we kind of need it in order, to, in order to get by, in order to prosper. And without it, we tend to suffer in, in the natural. And so, you know, money is one of those necessary things. Some people say it's a necessary evil, but we're going to talk about that, about how not, that's not necessarily true. So this whole book, we're going to get into verses one through six. This whole book, James has been calling for us to come to a place of dependence on God. Depend on him. Surrender all those things so that what you're really depending on is only God. That's what he's been calling us to do. And right here at the beginning of chapter five, he's actually calling out those people who are sometimes in greatest danger of trying to be independent from God. And those are people who are wealthy because money can provide a lot of things in our natural world that we're supposed to be relying on God for. Money can provide provision. You know, it can take care of our basic needs of you know, food and clothing and shelter and all of that. Money can, gain, can help us gain influence. Money is a tool that can be used for a lot of things in this world, and we need to put it in its proper place as a tool, as something that God allows us to use, but not as something that is supposed to replace him in our lives. And so James is calling out right at the start people who have gotten this backwards and twisted. And money has taken the place of God and caused these negative uh, motivations and negative actions in their lives. And he gets very like Old Testament prophet sounding here. So this is, this is probably a lot of fun for James, actually. So it's called a warning to rich oppressors in the, in the NIV. Uh, James 5, 1 through 6. We're just going to read all six verses. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not 
opposing you. So while we're talking about this idea of opposing, we need to mention, we mentioned it last week, God is not opposed to wealth. God is not opposed to you having money, right? God, if, you, if you have a lot of it, whether you have it or don't have it, that's not the issue. God is not opposed to you having things and being blessed and, and having his favor upon you in the form of riches. For example, Abraham was probably a, a multimillionaire in our terms, right? But also blessed of God. David and Solomon, you don't build that kind of temple that Solomon built without a little bit of cash. You know, it takes some funds to be able to build that temple. Uh, David was a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea, the man who gave his tomb so that Jesus would have a place to be buried. And Joseph rolled the stone there himself. Um, he was extremely wealthy. And then Job, who James is going to mention later. Job uh, was the wealthiest man of his time in his area. So also incredibly blessed by God as the story works its way out. So God isn't opposed to us having things. He's opposed to things having us. Money is neither good nor evil. It is neutral. Money is a thing. It's an inanimate object that we have ascribed a value to. We've all agreed this bill means this much and purchases that much. We've all just agreed together that's what that's valued at. But it's a tool to be used. And whether it gets used for good or evil, as you see in verses 1 through 6, depends on who's using it. Depends on who's using it. James isn't calling out the rich because they have wealth. He's calling them out and he's warning us right now because of how they've allowed that wealth to affect their hearts. And, and, and what we see in, in 1 Timothy 6.10, uh, Paul tells Timothy, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that is what James is warning the rich oppressors about. He's saying, appreciating wealth is fine, but having affection for your wealth is dangerous. We need to be able to be okay having it, and we need to be able to let it go and have it not control us. And what he's really asking, um, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this message title as just getting back to the source. Because what James is really asking in these first six verses is, who is your source for provision, for power, for identity? And as he's talking about these rich oppressors, what we see is that they've determined that their source of power is their wealth. Their source of, of provision is their wealth. He says, you've fattened yourselves up. You've hoarded all of your things when I intended for you to be blessed so that you could share it with others and that you could see blessing in other people's lives, but you've hoarded it for yourself. The fact that somebody has a hoard of treasure is evidence that they're not willing to let it go, that they are, uh, that they are keeping it to themselves, often at the expense of what God might want to do with it. If he, makes us, if he makes us wealthy, then he does it for a purpose. He does it for a reason. Um, so who is our source for provision, power, and identity? We should be looking to God himself to be our source for these things. He makes it clear, actually, about this in the first two commandments, Genesis 20, 3 and 4. These are the very first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourselves an idol 
or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. And in James 5, 1 through 6, he's calling these rich oppressors out and asking them to examine what their source is. And if it's bad, turn another way. Find your source in him. Rather than looking to God as the source, these uh, these rich oppressors have begun to look to their wealth as their source. And what it's done, as Paul promised Timothy, it leads to a bunch of different evils. It's led these guys to gluttony. They're hoarding things for themselves because that's how they're finding their identity and their self-worth. It's led them, it's led them to oppression. Like they have people who are working for them that they're refusing to pay because that means that they got to give up some of their wealth. And it's led them to murder. They're withholding from others to the point that those others are suffering and dying. That's how much their wealth means to them. And when it means more to them than the person in front of them, God has a problem. When what you have means more to you than the person in front of you, that is problematic for our God because he created them fearfully wonderfully, with a plan and a purpose. And if they're standing in front of you, then you are a part of that plan and purpose. You are a part of helping release them into what God has for them. But when we withhold, we're keeping them from where he wants them to be. So these guys are withholding from those in need. They're extorting labor without compensation. They're hoarding their possessions way beyond what they need or what they can use. And they're looking to their wealth as their source for provision and identity. And he's addressing a specific group of people, but he's also issuing a warning to all of us. Because, I mean, honestly, we can look down on these rich oppressors who have a lot and aren't doing well with it, but maybe it's easy for me to look down on them because I'm not in their situation and I don't have the opportunity to hoard my wealth like they do. I got to check my heart. James is calling them out, but at the same time, he's warning us. If you get into that situation where you have plenty, check your heart. Examine your heart. I'm a huge Switchfoot fan. John Foreman's an amazing songwriter. He's got a song called If the House Burns Down Tonight. And we are all just kind of a step away from being one of these rich oppressors. If our hearts remain unchecked, John Foreman says, there's a fire coming that we all go through. You possess your possessions or they possess you. Love that song. The house burns down tonight. It's so good. Go and listen to it um, and, then, and sing along because it's super rocking. Uh, so verses one through six are about money, but they're not just about money. They're about what we possess and what we allow to possess us. If we allow God's spirit to possess us, then what's created through us is from his spirit. If we allow our earthly possessions to possess us, then what we create with that, with that influence is earthly, and it's full of death, and it's full of destruction, right? So it's what are we allowing to flow through us? And James already referred to this in chapter 4 as in this warning about greed, he referred, to, he referred to it as being friends with the world. He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we begin to trust in the things of the earth more than we trust in our Father in heaven, then we're becoming a friend of the world and we're actually pitting ourselves against the plan of God in our lives. We're actively opposing him, actively resisting us, actually resisting him. So what, what James is reminding us of, and Jennifer mentioned it in, 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 uh, when she was talking about the offering. That's, that's one of the reasons why tithing is so important. I mean, in one sense, God is wanting to allow us the opportunity to partner with him to sow into his kingdom and to see things happen on the earth. And so there's an outward focus there. But on the other hand, tithing is a, is a practice of submission. It's a practice of honoring God with wealth, recognizing I'm giving this because I know where I received it from and I don't want to hoard it. Right? I don't want to become like a rich oppressor. I want to freely give because I've freely received. I've been blessed and so I want to be a blessing. And, and what tithing does is it routinely, it reminds us of that attitude that we must have toward whatever we possess. It doesn't have to just be about money. I've been given, if you've been given a ton of influence, that God's not asking for you to to use that influence to build yourself up, he's asking you to use that influence to pave the way for others. Right? It's not, it's the things that he's given us are not just about us. The things that he's given us are so that we can sow them into others. Right? And our, our, our money is that way, our influence is that way. Um, shoot, with our, with our greeters, when we come walking in the door, their hugs are that way. Like God has not given them this wonderful gift of hugging somebody and just melting you so that they could just like stand there. It's give it away, you know? Give it away. Hug somebody. Be a light. Whatever he's given you, pour it out. Don't make it an idol. There's an Indian um, author and, and poet, Rabindranath Tagore, and he says this, and I think it's so powerful. Your idol is shattered in the dust to prove that God's dust is greater than your idol. That'll preach. <laughs> just a message just on that. Your idol, and, and God will do this with our idols. He will shatter them in the dust, bring them to nothing, so that we recognize that his dust is greater than our idol. And so with that in mind, we're getting into uh, section two of this passage in James, which is verses 7 through 11. He's talking, about, he, he's talking about the natural world. He's talking about farming here. Let's read it out. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have, a, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So in that first section, he was asking, what's your source of identity? What's your source for provision? Here he's asking, what's your source of hope? What do you place your trust in? What do I place my trust in? And I love that he uses the analogy of farming because, man, farming is a life of faith. You have to sow 
in faith that the way God created the world is going to keep working the way that it's been working. You know, the rains have to come. You can't make them come, right? The conditions, soil conditions have to be right. You can't always make it right. Um, you, you, need, you need for your, your, your land to be relatively stable and undisturbed, and you don't know what's going to happen in the earth, right? You, we don't know. When you're farming, you are, you are literally sowing in faith, hoping for a return, trusting in what God created. And that's what this, that's what he's encouraging us to be as believers. Surrender the need to control things. Trust in God's plan to produce things. Uh, invest in the divine law of sowing and reaping. And practice the principles of faithfulness, patience, and perseverance. I don't think it's any accident that he references Job here. He just talked about riches. Man, Job was a rich man, but he did not find his source in his riches. And he's talking about perseverance and patience. And I believe those are at the heart of the story of Job, but also at the heart of Job's story is trust and faithfulness. Trust and faithfulness. Job, um, Job was incredibly blessed materially by God. It mentions at the very start in Job chapter one about how much he had and how much he invested that into the kingdom and how wise he was, even making offerings on behalf of his kids because he wasn't sure if they were gonna be making an offering that day and he wanted everything to be covered. So he, would, he, was, he was interested in sowing into the kingdom. And when all those things got taken away, the enemy thought, well, he's, he's, he's excited about you, God, because of what you've blessed him with. And God said, okay, well, let's see. Let's begin to take some things away. And Job had everything taken away to the point where his friends and his wife were telling him, you know, it's probably time that you curse God and just die. And Job refused. He said, I don't understand what's happening to me but I know who my God is, and I refuse to curse him or question him. I'm going to ask him things I'm wondering about. I'm going to ask him questions. Why is this happening? But I'm not going to say, how could you do this to me? I'll ask him questions, but I'm not going to question God. Even when he didn't understand his situation, even when he was encouraged to turn his back on God and just begin to trust in the material world, Job's source was not his wealth. And his hope was not in his situation. His trust, his hope, his source for provision was in the Lord. And because it was that way, we see in the book of Job, God could trust him to steward it well. And his protection was upon him. And when the enemy had been proven wrong, he blessed Job with way more than he had at the beginning. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And what we see in verse 11 there is as we remain faithful to him, as we look to him for our provision, put our hope in him, ultimately we see his victory. And ultimately we experience his compassion and mercy, or we become more aware of how his compassion and mercy never left us in the first place. So we get into section three. This brings us to James 5.12, the very last verse we're gonna talk about in James. And it's a call to integrity. James says, above all, my brothers and sisters, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. James is asking one last question about our sources. And this question is, who is your source of authority? 
He's asked, who's your source for provision? He's asked, who's your source of hope? Now he's asking, who's your source of authority? Who gets the final word? Who's in control? James is actually echoing something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in Matthew 5, 34 through 37 said, I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne, or by the earth because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you can't make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Anything beyond our yes or no. And I think it's interesting that in James 5.12, he says, he's talked about riches, he's talked about patience, and then he gets to verse 12 and he says, but above all, let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. Meaning, above all, this that I'm about to tell you is actually overarching above everything I've told you already. Above all, just walk with integrity. Let your yes be a yes, let your no be a no. When you're serving the Lord, and recognizing his authority, and you're an instrument for him, then none of us can add anything authoritatively to what God has already said that's going to make any difference. We don't have any authority except what God gave us through Jesus. Right? So um, he's, he's referencing here a little bit of, uh, of this habit of affirming something with an oath, which at the time was really popular uh, to do in Jewish and Palestinian culture. Um, and there were these things called like uh, binding oaths, where you included the name of God, and then non-binding oaths, which you left the name of God out of it, right? So which is kind of like when you're telling someone, you cross your fingers behind your back and you say, no, I swear, I'm totally going to clean my room, mom, when you do that, right? But ah, uh, cross my fingers, don't have to. So the non-binding oath became very popular and it was a sign of like swindlers and snake oil salesmen and people who would say, hypocrites, people who would say one thing and do another. And so James is addressing that and he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. you're a believer in Jesus. His word is enough. Stand on that and you have no reason to try to use your own authority to convince someone of its veracity, to convince someone that it's the truth. Just let your yes be a yes, let your no be a no. And honestly, that's all we can be in control of anyway. The things that I say yes to, I should say yes to because I know that I can follow that up. Or Jesus can. Let my yes be a yes, let my no be a no. Uh, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, uh, Jesus came up to them and spoke saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. James is calling us to surrender everything and he's calling us, lastly here, to surrender to Jesus' authority, to surrender to his authority, to recognize, okay, I have my plans, I have my ideas, I have my thoughts, I have my skills, I have my talent, I have these possessions, I have this life going on, but ultimately, he is in charge. He is in control. And if he says, do this, I just need to do that. And if he says, this is so, then I just need to say yes without adding my own flourish to it. Because what, what value is that? What authority do I have that he didn't give to me already? You know, he is sovereign. And James, this whole book has been calling us to surrender everything to him. And as, as we ultimately, he says, above all, walk with integrity. Above all, surrender to Jesus' authority. As we do that, everything else 
falls in line. Everything else works its way out. As we surrender to Jesus' authority, then we're able to surrender all those other things, our need to control, our pride, our tongue, our, our possessions, as we recognize who is really in charge, who has authority. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Thank you.